I think one of the most enjoyable plane rides I've ever had in my life was on a plane full of children. When you get on a plane, you tend to count how many small babies there are around you and infants. And then you sort of hope that you won the, the seat assignment roulette. That wasn't the case on this plane. Julie and I were together on this plane. We, we were flying from Hong Kong. And around us were probably 10, 12, could have been as many as 15 small children. And it was wonderful. They were babies. They were toddlers. And these children, all of them were on what's known as the adoption flight. The twice a month flight that came from that part of the country. And they were Westerners who had gone in and picked up children and were on their way home. As you watched them, these parents had only had these children, in some cases, only a few hours. And they're coming onto a plane and this child, they're holding to their chest and they begin to just sing and talk to these children. It was an extraordinary flight. You would hear a parent lean over and go, your name is Lila. Lila. And they would pull out scrapbooks and they would say, and this is the home you're going to. And this is your brother. And my, I'm mama. And they begin to tell stories to these children. And, and as you watch, these moms sing these songs over to these kids, humming to them for 14, 15 hours on this flight back. And fathers putting their arms around them as they were praying, this is the story you now get to live. Please write your story into this story was a flight attendant. She was a sweetheart. African-American woman who sat at the, at the back. And I noticed she had her Bible out as we, as, as we started off on the flight. And, and so somewhere in the sequence, I kind of leaned back to her and I said, is this just a good time to do the Bible study? And she said, no. She said, I, I, I like my Bible study, but that's not what I do it for. She said, I ask for this flight each time. She said, this is my privilege to take this adoption flight, the twice a month. She said, I, I sit back here and I pray over each of these names on the roster. She said, I get the roster a day in advance. And she said, I pray. And she said, I, I, I know these children are going to a new world and a new home and a new life. And she said, I, I pray. And she said, I, I ask God to give me a verse, a word for each of these children. And she said, I, I, she was writing. I thought she was journaling. And she said, I write out a, a note for each child of the verse I have prayed over them. And the word that I think the Lord has given me. And I go up to the parents and, and she said, I will kneel down and ask, is it okay if I give you this? Is it okay if I pray over your child? And she said, I then lay my hands on and pray. She happened to ask, uh, we, a conversation had gone on and she said, um, I'm trying to find a verse. She said, the Lord gave me a verse, but he didn't tell me the, the, the text. And, and she said, um, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. She said, I've been all through Psalms, and I can't find it. And one of these kids, well, every now and then the Lord will give a blind, you know, a sow and acorn. Because uh, I said, it's not in Psalms. That's, that's Proverbs 18. I think it's verse 10. And she flipped to that and she said, yes, yes. She said, this child's name, and she begins to describe, she said, this child needs to know the name that's a strong tower. And Julie and I sat on that flight with emotions deeper than I can give to you. You see, with one acceleration down a runway, these children went from, I'm not going to say they weren't loved, that, that wouldn't be fair, but they went from institutions 
They went from a place where there was no care for them. One girl had a one leg 8 to 12 inches shorter than the other leg. She had two digits on this hand. And I don't know what her or her future would have been there, but I watched a mama take that little hand that was so disformed and just keep kissing that hand and going, oh, sweetheart, ah, sweetheart, I'm so glad you're mine. I need you to picture that. Because if you can picture that, at some point in time, you need to know that is the story of your life. It's not one acceleration down a runway. It's one walk up a hill. And a cross is planted. And a crucified Christ. And a risen Christ. And his father sing over you. Who said to you and say, please, please hear this story. You can write your story any way you want to write it. We know that. But please write your story into this story. Because this is the real story. This is really who you are. I don't care what all the post-it notes on your life have told you. I don't care what kind of scars you've already carried. I don't care where you've been. I don't care where you, what you've done. I don't care how dirty you have become in your face and under your fingernails. Come, would you come sit in this seat and would you let me sing over you? There's not a professor in this room who has gotten to the age or the experience or the place that he's still not just a child who sits in a seat and being sung over. There's not a single senior in this room who can exegete any text of scripture who has anything better than to know that I sit in a seat and I'm simply sung over. That my world changed, not because of what I did or what I achieve or what I know or what I can do or how I'm employed or how people know me or don't know me. The only thing that is my life is I sit in a seat with one who sings over me. Zephaniah, chapter 3. The Lord, he, he will be with you. And he goes through this little passage, you mighty to save. And it comes down, and he will quiet your heart with his love. He will sing, and then you get your choice in the Hebrew. He will sing joyfully over you, or it's he will sing loudly over you. There's this incredible picture. It's sort of that... Isaiah 49, incredible picture of a tattooed God who's inscribed your names in the palms of his hand. Nothing in your life, nothing in four years, and for some of you, six or seven years here, nothing in your years here will ever trade out for the fact that the only life I have is one of being sung to and told a story and invited to write my story into that story. Everything changed on one acceleration down a runway. I don't know how Paul sang. I have no idea whether we would ever let Paul on the stage or not. But Ephesians chapter 1 is nothing more than singing over you. I know you can exegete it, and I know that this Greek text and all that. But, but at some point in time, you realize, don't you, we put too many bulbs on things, and you kind of forget to even see the thing it is. He sings over you. Here it is. Let me read for you. For you. I deliberately didn't put it on the screen. I'm going to be using the New Living Translation, but I'd like you to just listen. 
For some of you, looking at me is the best way to see this. Others of you, you need to close your eyes and sit quietly. But this is your chair. This will always be your chair. There'll never become a time. You'll never grow too old. You don't need to be sung over. There'll never become such experience in your life. You don't need this chair. And the one who sits in this chair sings over you these kinds of things. Verse 3. I'll praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins and he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. In verse 11, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he made everything work out according to his plan. You get your choice in verse 11. You get to decide the grammar goes either way. Because we're united with Christ, you get an inheritance. Or because you're united with Christ, you are God's inheritance. The only legacy, the only thing he wanted to hang on to is you. You get your choice on how that flows. Middle of verse 13. God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he's purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Verse 15, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight that you may grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you'll understand the confident hope that he has given to those who he has called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. And seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you have been saved. For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Verse 8, God saves you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. Now, verse 12, the middle of verse 12. 
You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. And once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself brought peace. Verse 19. So now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Just for time, let me drop down to verse 12, chapter 3. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. I don't think Paul could write verses 14 to the rest of the chapter without tears falling on the page. This old lion of God, I can't imagine that he didn't see your faces and my faces, that he didn't see the faces of the people that he was writing to. This is a circular letter. He knew more we were going to see that than just the church at Ephesus. But I can't imagine that he was not crying when he wrote this. Verse 14. When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he would empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ Though it is too great to fully understand, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. His name is Watchman Nee. I first began to read his writings while he was still alive. He was in imprisonment in China. I don't have any frame of reference for China, other than this extraordinary thing that God has done. It's one of the most amazing things I could have ever imagined. More Christians in China than there are people in the Communist Party. I know what China used to be. Watchman Nee is one of a handful. I don't know if it's a double handful, triple handful, but he's one of a handful of people who made a massive difference. About a 30-year ministry. From 1938 to 1940, he gave a series of lectures all over China, Traveled a little outside of China, and he also gave these lectures, and he lectured from the book of Ephesians. He didn't write these down as much as they were written down by other people from his sermons. There's a little 64-page booklet entitled Set, Walk, Stand, a study in Ephesians. And from this book of Ephesians, the groundwork in many ways of everything Watchman Nee ever taught in China, everything that led to the explosion of the 400 churches he was involved with, and then the 40,000 churches, and then the 400 kinds of thousand churches, all of it sort of come and flow out of this concept in some level. Here's, here's what he said. The book of Ephesians, he said, can be broken into three parts. It's built around three words. The three words are set, walk, stand. He chose those words because in chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about how Christ risen from the grave and and, and made alive as he sits in the heavenlies. And so you see this great um, 
reward, this great return, this great restoration of glory given to Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says this amazing thing. You were dead. You had no right. You didn't earn a thing. But out of his great love, Christ decided to love you. And because you believed in Christ, now you are raised and you are seated in the heavenlies with him. In this idea of set, he takes chapters 1, 2, and 3 and builds everything he says around this idea of set. Do you know where you set? Do you know what's sung over you? Do you know what the truth about you is? Do you know where you are? Set. And then he takes chapters 4 and 5 and he uses the second word. You know it from chapter 4 of Ephesians, walk. You're going to walk among men. But he says you can't walk among men if this is not where you set. He's going to say in chapter 6, you take your stand against the devil. But you can't take your stand if you don't know where you set. Set is the core of the Christian life. He begins to say a series of things. Let me just quote a few things from, from Watchman. He says, we begin our journey by setting. We begin everything by resting in the finished work of Christ. That resting is the source of our strength. He said, the odd thing in life is that we think we walk and run so we can earn the right to set. He said, this is an odd thing, the Christian life. You set, you always set so that you can walk and run. He went ahead and said in some other books as he, as he wove it in, he, he said the problem with many believers is they try to run and walk because they think they're supposed to, but they have not set well enough. And if you've not set well enough, you ruin all of your walking and you ruin all of your running. When we stand, Watchman said, we bear our own weight. When we set, something or someone else bears all of our weight. He said all true experience begins from rest. We begin the Christian life. We live the Christian life. We end the Christian life just as it begun. Every action, every day, every battle, every act of service is not dependent upon ourselves, but upon him. Upon him. Come and set. As Watchman Nee laid this out, he said, think about creation. He said, God works on six days, and on the sixth day he makes a human being. And Adam wakes up and opens his eyes and sees all the work of God. And the next morning, Adam gets his lunchbox and says, now, okay, I need to set about doing something. And God says, no, rest. I've been working. You start always with the rest. And the first full day of Adam's life was come and rest. Watchman Nee takes that and says that pattern will always go that direction. You say, well, what right do I have to come and sit? He said, nothing more than this. He said, you put a dollar bill inside of a book. And whatever happens to that book and wherever that book goes, that dollar bill goes. He said, you are the dollar bill and Christ is the book. Every part of your life is around this idea of sin. If we were to do a, a tighter look at this text, you're going to notice that the aorist tense is everywhere. But I don't want to just focus on the aorist tense. I just want to pick up the richness. Aorist tense means past, completed, finished. It's, it's the done kind of stuff. Can I just go with some words that I've underlined? By the way, I, I know somehow setting and resting in this, I'll get more out of this than anybody else in this room. You need to go set. You need to have this sung over you by somebody better than me to sing it to you. But can I give you the words that are sung over my life out of this text? 
They're our words. Here they are. Blessed, united, loved, chosen, blameless, holy, adopted, belonging, purchased, free, forgiven, showered with kindness, filled, saved, given, given lavishly, raised up, seated with him, God's masterpiece, brought near, reconciled, citizens, members of his household, the dwelling of God, made rich, confident in his presence, empowered, complete love. You know, this sort of flies in the face of everything we've grown up with. From the time I was a kid, I I knew, I kind of knew the laws of this world. I I figured gravity out pretty quick because gravity had more power over my walking. I mean, every kid here has fallen to their rear end a gazillion times learning to walk. We didn't set anything on kitchen counters. It didn't fall off. We figured gravity out really quick. There are laws of this world we figured out somewhere on the on the swings. We figured out centrifugal force and merry-go-rounds and those things. We figured the laws of this life. We have all scars to show those things. We figured the laws out. One of the laws of life goes like this. You're born with a spirit of accusation. And you live in an insecure world that's taught you well. The rules of this life are not complex. The rules of life are these. You only get what you, you only get what you earn. You only get to keep what you hold on to. And you're only worth what is validated. As I drove from my house over this morning to church, I had news, I had this talk radio on. And the guy, it's like he'd read my notes. He said, there's not many things you need to know in life, but you only get what you earn. And you only get to keep what you hold on to. I thought, Lord, I guess I will read that somewhere on my notes. But that law of life is so permanent. We know that. Martin Luther said this sense of law, this sense of you only get what you earn, is like a constant guest in our conscience. Some people say, that's why I stay away from religion. I don't like all its harsh demands. Oh, bad religion makes harsh demands on you, I'll agree. Bad religion tells you you've got to live up to something. But bad religion doesn't hold a candle, I don't think, even to the burden that secular life lays upon. And so bad religion matches the same stupid laws of the secular world. A guy named David Zoll said... And he wrote a book called The Law and Gospel of Theology for Sinners and Saints. He wrote, some gal's walking to work today in Manhattan. And as she does so, accusations and condemnation echo off the skyscraper walls. She doesn't know the Ten Commandments. She hasn't read Scripture. She hasn't been in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those have no voice to her. But what she does know is these commandments, thou shalt be skinny. And thou shalt be successful, and thou shalt be independent, and thou shalt be self-actualized. She's long grown accustomed to the self-internalized voice of a condemning parent. She's long heard inside this demanding voice of a teacher. She long inside heard the voice of an old boyfriend, and the ghost echoes in her head constantly, you'll never quite be enough. It's the same echo within dorm rooms. It's the same echo you hear in hallways. It's the same echo that occurs as grades are passed out and people stand next to their mailboxes and pull grades out. You'll never quite be enough. 
Oh, it might have been good last year, but it's like lasting tissue paper. What, what have I done now? Now what do people think? Now who's moved in? Now what's happened? Now what happened in the next class? Does that teacher like me? Does that one not? That one got the internship. That, how, how come? And the echo of the world is you'll never quite be enough. And Paul calls us and says, come sit. You're going to have to have a better story sung over you. You're going to have to know the whole realm of the world has such backwards in the the world as you know it. You die and there is no more. In the world of the living God, people who die are raised and live. You need to know in the world you only get to keep what you earn. In the world of the living God, let me sing over you. Let me choose you. Let you rest in my finished work. You see, this works righteousness stuff is not church stuff, it's human stuff. And human stuff is permeated everywhere. And so we're desperate and frantic. This idea of justify yourself and this please, somebody please validate me. And please validate me in a way that sticks. At the end of Saving Private Ryan, it's the old man in the Normandy Cemetery And he's crying, first of all, almost to a headstone. Please tell me I've done a good job. And his wife is there and he's pleading, please tell me I'm a good man. And his wife's stuttering stuttering and stammering, stammering, trying to give validation. We mock the old traditions. The world had an old traditional style of how you got validation. Do your duty. Live in your tribe, live in your field, live in your custom, live in your city. Like fence post, you need to just be as the same height as everybody else. And you need to stand in the same line as everybody else. And if your dad was a baker, then you're going to be a baker. And you're going to raise your kids to be bakers. And, and, and the authorities in town, they will validate you that you've done your duty. And somehow that brokenness we knew never worked. Because nobody could validate you well enough. Your older brother somehow always measured up better than you did. Your younger brother, no matter how much. You almost wanted to go to your own funeral in the old traditional ways. So that you could at least hear, was my life validated? Well, we've thrown the old tradition away. And now we have made it harder to still not be validated. Now we have no tribes, not really. No fence to stand next to. Now here's what you have to do. You have to come in the world and each of you have to create your own dream. You have to self-actualize, create a dream and then live a dream in such a way that it impresses some nameless, some nebulous crowd. You gotta live your dream in such a way that people think you're funny and people think you're smart and people think you, you're successful and you, and you, and you gotta go carve it out and you don't even know who to carve it out with. And so you move from group to group and you try to figure out and you try to carve out somebody, please sing over me. Please sing over me. Tim Keller said, working with young adults in Hong Kong, or Hong Kong, in New York City. He says, you can see They were a big deal in their little town in Tennessee. And they played the violin. And they were known. And they were applauded. But they somehow knew that wasn't a big enough circle. And so they got on a bus or a plane and they came to New York City. 
And they got off the plane. They got off the bus. They got on the subway. And now they didn't even know which group to impress. And the panhandler with his case open beside the subway was a better violinist than they were. And he said, suddenly you watch the world begin to crumble. There is no answer to life. John chapter, John chapter 1 talks about in Christ is life. In John chapter 10, it's abundant life. In 1 John, it's life. In Colossians, it's life. Do you want to know where your life is? You can sit here in this chair and you can have your life spoken into you or you can go live the rules of this world but you cannot live out both stories. You're going to have to decide which story you choose to live out. Living in two stories will destroy you. So which story do you live in? There's a thousand reasons to fight to sit only in this chair and no other story. For some of you, you're going to get your heart broke. Just the stuff of life. You thought you liked that guy. You thought you liked that girl. You kind of gave yourself permission to have some hopes and dreams, but it sort of turned out they don't lean your direction. They kind of lean another direction, and you go back to your room, and you go, I missed out again, and, and, and you have this sense of just brokenness of, wow, my life is just not where I want it to be. I'm reminded of our grandchildren. We do a crazy cousin's camp. We bring them all in. Oh, 37 or 56 of them. I don't know what it is. I just know I sleep really well when they leave. (laughs) But here's a conversation you'll have to have all the time. And it's a good conversation. You see, you grab one or two of the grandchildren, you head off to make a run to the store, but you didn't take them all and you couldn't take them all and didn't need to take them all. And so you take one or two, or maybe the, everybody got two cinnamon rolls, but there was a third one, and somebody got a third one, and nobody, I didn't get the two. And, and do you know what small children do? Somebody gets their feelings hurt because somehow it's not fair, and the lip bounces out, and they begin to, to struggle. And, and so you take a grandchild aside. You don't need to shout at them or get mad. Good grief, they've already got a bad story playing out. Why would I add to their bad story? And you sit down, and you sit in a chair. You tuck a grandchild next to you, and you just begin to say, do you think there's ever going to come a time that we won't love you? Do you think there's ever a time we will forget about you? Do you ever think that our love is some little box, that if we take too much out of our box and give to your brother, that there won't be enough left in the box to love you? Do you not know that we have hopes and dreams for you and We'll live out things this week with you. And so you begin to tug them in and talk, and you begin to tell them stories. You say, do you, I know you don't remember the day you were born. And you begin to describe a young mom and dad they have, and you begin to describe the day of their birth, and you describe what you did, and you begin to put context to their life. And the context is, you are so deeply loved, you don't have to fight over some trip to Dollar General. You don't have to worry whether one-third cinnamon roll has one impact with anything. It's a story of how deeply loved you are. Some of you need sung over. You show it in your face. You show it in your tension. 
I don't know why you need sung over. It's time for you to go to class anyhow. There's six or seven reasons I, I, I wrote down, but I can tell you one of them. One of them is you're going to have failure. You, you just are. I don't know why in God's sovereignty he sometimes put me in places that he's put me, but God has put me in some intersections that when I left, I was so sick at my stomach because I failed so strongly. Oh, that sense of it just wasn't adequate enough. It just, it was like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 and it had nothing that was helpful to people. And in God, it was a place that could have, and, 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 and I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning many times in my life with just sick at my stomach going, that was such a failure. Such, such a swing and a mess. And yet the Lord has sung over me and said, Randy, do you think talent is the currency of the kingdom? Randy, talent is not the currency of the kingdom and never be the king. Randy, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Randy, even when you didn't love me well, did you want to love me well? Yeah, Randy, you, Lord, you knew that. Even when I didn't love you well, I wanted to love you. Randy, that's the currency of the kingdom. And Randy, I loved you before you could put two words together. And Randy, I will love you when you don't even know your first name anymore. Now, Randy, whether or not you brought talent to a place becomes irrelevant. Come sit in a chair. Let me sing over you. Some of you are in sin. You just are. Sin crouches at all of our door. Sin's never a violation of some little law on a wall. It's never a violation of some code you signed. Sin is always an invitation to live out a different story. That's all it is. It's always just an invitation to live out a different story. And so you're, you're, you're caught trying to, to live out with one hand a book like this you're studying and on the other hand living out a different story. In the darkness of your room. At some point in time, you need sung over. I don't think I preached repentance very well in my early years. I think I preached repentance as always if you were supposed to scale the bark off trees. I thought repentance was somehow you scalded something with the truth so that people would wake up and sort of self-wash and come back to the Lord. So convicted. It's not what it is. Repentance... In fact, if you read through Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 31, Hosea 14, repentance is always a God who will not be mocked, but he's a God who woos and calls and woos. I was a kid, probably third, fourth grade, birthday party for me. A bunch of boys came to my house. My, always, my dad always said, if you have one boy, you've got an incredible thing. If you have two boys, you have half a boy. And if you have three boys, you have no boy at all. Well, there was a bunch of us, and we were down at a field, and there were dirt clods in that field and cars going by. Wow, that seemed like an amazing coincidence. An opportunity from God. And a bunch of us boys began to throw dirt clods at cars. As you may well guess, one old man chased us down and caught us. You talk about have a dressing down. I don't think I even had socks on when I got home. Oh, man, he gave us a, a riot act. Oh, he read us a riot act. Man, I'm sick about it. I'm... The next three days, four days, I hid it best I could from my dad. 
And finally, I couldn't hide it any longer, and I broke down, and I just bawled. Oh, my goodness. I remember sitting in that bedroom with Mom beside me, and I'm just bawling. Good grief. Sometimes the same way I do when Julie mistreats me. I, I, I just bawled. I was bawling and bawling. And... I'll tell you about the weekend some other time, but that's, that's, not, that's, that's not today. My mom, I just remember the oddest reaction, my mom just hugging me and laughing. And she said, son, we knew it from the first hour. Do you think we didn't know? Why do you think your dad asked you to ride to town with him the last two days? Why do you think he sat on the tailgate and drank a Coke with you? Why do you think, and she just began to talk through the last three days of a wooing father just asking me to write my story into their story and not write some other crazy story. Repentance. And where you find it in scripture, you can always write the tender words, return to me. Return to me. We need sung over, gang. We need sung over. The lie is so deep that if you do not let Christ sing over you, I wonder if that's why Jesus went out every morning and first time to prayer. I wonder whether he was sang over. All I know is I read Ephesians chapter 1. And every dragon I get to go slay for the kingdom. Everybody I get to stand beside and try to help rescue. Anybody that I ever ever have any good thing to say in their life, it never starts with my walking or my running. It begins with my setting. May God bless.